We need your help this morning, our Father. We need your help because, as is always true, not just on every Sunday morning, but on every day, we need to be changed. For no matter how long we have been in Christ Jesus as our Savior, we are not yet perfect on this side of glory. And because we are not perfect, there is always something, always several somethings that need transformation and sanctification. And so would you be pleased this morning to work in our hearts, to make us not just submissive to the government, but submissive to you. To let the word stand for what it says. And that we might honor it through obedience to it. We need your help in other ways as well, Lord. As I've already alluded to, there are pressures, demands on us that are outside of this room. And we need encouragement, hope, strength. We are all weak vessels. There's none of us who's great. We've just been given a great message to dwell in us. And might the greatness of that message come forth this morning. And again, Father, I would ask for your grace for myself to give me attention, clarity, Joy in the preaching of the word. We commend ourselves to you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Someone told me this week, I believe it was their grandchild that did this. I've forgotten all the exact details, so whoever it was that told me the story can correct me after the service. But They related to me that their grandchild's first word was, thank you. What child says that for their first word? Commonly, the first word of every child is, in unison now, no. I loved it when I found that picture. That's so classic. It is emphatic, isn't it? It's with a bullhorn. Absolutely not. They learn that word because they hear it from us so often. No, no, stop. Don't do that. No, don't go there. Move your hand. Step back. No. We we say it to protect them. They'll kill themselves if we don't stop them. It's a dangerous world out there. And they turn it. That word that we are using for their protection, they use in rebellion. And not damaging their bodies, but damaging their souls. That first rebellious word that we learned as children has stayed with us, hasn't it? We are quick to say, no, I won't. 
That desire is ingrained in our sinful nature and it persists in our flesh even after we become believers in Christ. It's, it's ingrained into our cultural awareness as Americans. Give me liberty and freedom or I'll die fighting to get the liberty I want. That's my paraphrase of what Patrick Henry said. And it's ingrained in us as Texans who have been fighting for liberty since before the Alamo. Recently, I've had more than one out-of-state friend say to me with some amount of envy, you know, Texas is the only state in the U.S. that can secede and form its own nation. And that plays right into our desire for liberty and freedom and rights, doesn't it? We like options. We like our rights. We don't like authorities telling us what to do. So as we think about government, this is, as a friend of mine told me last Sunday, this is loophole Sunday. This is the day we find out what opportunities there are to resist the government. And if there are legitimate opportunities for objection, what that rebellion should look like. Let me remind you of the theme of the passage, Romans 13. We've read it multiple times. Every believer should always honor his government. We might even note more precisely that the text would tell us that because God has ordained every government, every believer should always honor the government. How should we honor the government? Paul will give us three responses for the believer to the government. We saw the first of those in some detail last Sunday, and it is to submit to the government. Let me just remind you very briefly what the apostle said in these in these verses. As he thinks about submission, he remind, he tells us that submission is for all people. Thirteen one, the first words, every person is to be in subjection to the government. That subjection That submission is a willing and joyfully placing of ourselves underneath the authority that is over us. And there are no exceptions to that submission. It is for everyone, for literally every soul, every person. And that submission in this context is offered to governing authorities, all governments everywhere. We are to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That is the authorities that are over you, wherever they are, from the president down to the policemen, to the people who work in the county office that take your tax money every year. Everyone from top to bottom, we are in submission to them. If a law is made and it applies to me, I must obey. If there is an authority over me, I must submit joyfully. Because that's the sense of submission. It's joyful. This is the baseline. This is the norm. Now, I will submit to you there are exceptions. We'll get to those in just a moment. But the, the exceptions are not the norm The norm is not disobedience. The norm is obedience, submission, honor, prayer, and joy towards the governing authorities. And the reason Paul says that is in verse 2. Because lack of submission is rebellion against God. Therefore, whoever resists authority 
has opposed the ordinance of God. He has, he has opposed God's command, God's dictate, God's sovereignty. He's, he's fighting against God's providence when he's fighting against government. And the consequence of that is that all who have opposed will receive condemnation on themselves. They'll receive, receive condemnation. They are inviting judgment on themselves. That judgment, verses 3 and 4, will come through the hands of the government. But the clear implication is it's not the government who's giving the judgment. It's God who's judging our rebellion and our disobedience. To oppose the government is to oppose God. That also is the norm. Submission also is for maintaining a clear conscience. Notice verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary. I think if Benjamin Franklin would have continued reading through the Gospels, he would have cut that word out too. It is necessary. It is necessary to be in subjection. Not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. When we rebel against government, when we don't submit to government, we are sinning against our consciences and our, we're, training our consci- we're training ourselves to, to ignore and rebel against what our conscience is telling us to do. And Paul says, I want you to train your conscience in such a way that you can follow it well. And so submit to the government so that you train yourself to follow your conscience and your conscience won't condemn you for guilt at being rebellious when you have no, re- no right to be rebellious. So submit to the government. Now the question everybody always has, and mom always said, it's always bad to say always and never say never, but it's true. The question always is, are there exceptions? When is it permissible to disobey or is it ever permissible to disobey? Let me give you two opportunities, if you will. We are required to disobey when we are commanded to falsely worship. We are required to disobey when we are commanded to falsely worship. When the government calls us to give allegiance to someone or something else above God and Christ. Not only is it permissible to disobey, brothers and sisters, we must disobey. We must be in rebellion. Let me give you a few examples. Turn to the book of Daniel. It's interesting, actually, most of the examples of civil disobedience and rebellion are in the book of Daniel, but it is Interesting to note the different circumstances under which the disobedience takes place and how that disobedience is manifested. So in chapter 1, we find Daniel and his friends have been taken from Israel into Babylon in captivity. Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Verse 3 tells us the king ordered Ashpenaz the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence of every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. He's taken the cream of the crop, right? He's taken the most excellent people that they brought into captivity. Now watch what the government is compelling Daniel and his friends to do. 
And he ordered him, Ashpenaz, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. I want you to put them in Babylonian school. I want them to get a Babylonian university degree so that they are indoctrinated in Babylonian philosophy. Verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. Now from among, now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 7, then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. So they have a new education, a new diet, and a new name. What's going to be the impetus for their rebellion if there is any? Verse 8. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with... If you didn't know the story, what would you say? The names? The school? With the king's choice food. Or with the wine that he drank. Isn't that interesting? What's up with the food? I mean, it's the best. I mean, we're talking like top sirloin where we never shop. A few months ago, Regine was at Kroger just at the right moment. And she found tomahawk steaks. You, know, you guys know what a tomahawk steak is? It's a two-inch thick steak that retails for 38 bucks. And she got three of them for seven. Not total each, but still. A $7 tomahawk steak. We never buy tomahawk steaks. I think Daniel, if he'd wanted it, that's what he was getting. As much as he wanted. And probably pork too. You wouldn't do it. Why? Why not rebel against the education? Because just because he's being taught it doesn't mean he has to believe it. He doesn't have to follow it. He's not forced and compelled to put his faith in what he's being taught. Why not rebel against the name? Because the name's a name. It's just, it's, it's just words. It doesn't change his identity. It doesn't change his personhood. Why the food? It's just food. It's not what goes into a man, Jesus would say, that defiles him, but it's what comes out of him. So what's the big deal about the food? Because God had given a specific set of instructions about food and clothing that separated Israel from the rest of the nations. And it marked them out as different from the nations. And to eat the food that God had forbidden is to be in rebellion against God. Deuteronomy 14. God says, you are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave your forehead for the sake of the dead. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And because of that, he says, 
you shall not eat any detestable thing. And then he goes into the whole law of what they can eat and what they can't eat. What's the point? You are not to eat food the way the rest of the world eats food so that the rest of the world knows you're different and you have a different God. And for Daniel and his friends to eat the food that was given to to them by the Babylonians is to say, we're just like you guys. We're no different. And it puts him in rebellion against God. Now, what is particularly notable is the end of verse 8. So he went to his lawyer and filed three legal briefs against the commander of the officials. Right? Marched around the city three times carrying placards protesting. He sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And he came up with a plan and said, hey, let's try this. He worked within the system. And appealed with graciousness. Turn a couple of pages over to chapter 3. Example number 2. Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 3 makes an image of gold. And commands everybody in Babylon to bow down and worship him. At the moment you hear verse 5. The sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe. And all kinds of music. You're to fall down and worship the golden image. That Nebuchadnezzar the king is set up, but whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. Verse 12, there are certain Jews, the, re- the report came back to Nebuchadnezzar, that you have appointed over the administration of the, Babylon, the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your guards. They do not, gods, they do not worship the golden image which you have set up. So they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, he commands them to bow down. And they appeal to him and say, look, there's another way to skin this cat, right? No. Verse 17, 16. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if he, even if he does not Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We will not worship. Do with us what you will. And it infuriated the king and he turned the heat on the furnace up seven times hotter. The people that threw him in to the furnace got burned up. It was so hot. And they simply said, Obedience to God in our worship is more important than life. And there's no compromise. There's no appeal. There's just a resolute, we are committed. We are following after God. We are headed after Him. We want Him and no one else. And we will follow Him and no one else. Turn the page. A couple more pages. Chapter 6. Another edict comes down from the king and the edict is for some some change in what we might call private worship verse six the commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows nebuchadnezzar is gone new king on the scene medes and persians are now ruling over what had been babylon 
King Darius lived forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or any man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. It's a short-term edict. 30 days. Isn't it interesting that they thought they were confident that they could catch Daniel being faithful to God and not to Darius in a 30-day span? And they're not talking about corporate worship here, right? They're just talking about prayer. Who's going to know? Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, his roof chamber, in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. And the implication is he just kept them open as he always did. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Twice in that verse, he says he just keeps doing what he's doing. Now, what's interesting is it's not corporate worship. It's private worship. He could have still had private worship. All he had to do was close the windows. Who knew? He could have gone somewhere else in his house and prayed to the Lord, been submissive to the Lord, continued to carry out his his spiritual disciplines. This is, this is not something, what he was doing was not something that was compelled by Scripture as to the form. But it was his way to, to commune with God and to say, I'm in fellowship with him and in worship of him. And that private practice of personal worship and delight in God, he was unwilling to change. Didn't make any statement about it. Didn't make any appeal about it. He just went and did it. I think it's maybe a suggestion from the text that there can be at times a kind of obedience to God that is really a submission to authorities that are attempting to lead us away from God. So there's a kind of obedience that Daniel could have done that would have kept the form of his relationship with God that in essence was actually submitting to the dictates of the world and making him to look no different than the world. Why did he keep doing what he did? Because that was always his practice and he wanted everybody to know I'm following the God of Israel alone. Even for 30 days. 30 days. He could have suspended his quiet time for 30 days and on day 31 gone back. Who would have known? He wasn't doing it. Those examples tell us that when we are required, we are required to disobey when we're commanded to worship falsely. There's another opportunity. We are required to obey God when we are commanded to disobey God's clear command. God's clear command. Turn with me back to Acts. 
Acts chapter 5 this time. Similar scenario. Acts chapter 5. Peter is in front of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the ruling council of Jerusalem. Not just Jerusalem though, but they really governed over all of Israel. They were primarily concerned with religious affairs, but they also had influence and carried over into things that were in the civil realm. So they essentially governed both religiously and civilly. Their primary concern, though, was for religious obedience. Verse 28. And when they had brought them, verse 27, they stood them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, verse 28, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. They can't even say the name of Jesus. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intended to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And then he takes that opportunity to preach the gospel again. We must. The the word must is in two senses. One, there is a legal obligation before God, a compelling of the scriptures that forces us to obey God rather than men. But there's also an inward compulsion. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. How can I deny him by denying his message and being silent about what he's done? I cannot be silent inwardly because of what he has, or outwardly because of what he has done for me. And notice that Peter here is talking about some clear violations of God's decree. He says we must obey God. We must obey what God has revealed. We know this to be true. And when God has said, you will be my witnesses... In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and throughout all the parts of the earth. We cannot disobey that. We cannot be silent. So when Peter says this, he is not talking about laws I don't like. I may not agree with a speed limit. I took my hand on that a couple weeks ago, didn't I? Or a tax or a federal budget. But those things don't compel me to disobey the Lord and I'm not free to violate them. Civil disobedience is not an option to make us more comfortable, to give us an easy life. In fact, if we disobey, life will often become much more uncomfortable because of the consequences that come from the government. And we will honor God when we willingly and joyfully accept those consequences of our righteous disobedience of the government. There's no complaining if we suffer for our disobedience that is right. Verse 40. They took the advice of Gamaliel and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. And again, ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So then they went on their way from the presence of the council 
rejoicing. That is so un-American. I say that to my shame as well. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. That they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. As far as I know from Scripture, that's the end of the list of exceptions. Pretty short list. Let me give you some cautions about civil disobedience. We may have a right to disobey, but we should not expect that disobedience to go unpunished. I used to think that I would never go to, the go-, go to prison for preaching the gospel. I'm no longer confident of that. I think there's a possibility that in this country, preachers who are faithful to the text, elders, Sunday school teachers, who are faithful to preach and teach what the text says, may have to give an account for that before the government. My children are in their 20s. I am very confident that their pastors will go to prison. I think the jury's out on me. Maybe, maybe not. I'd be shocked if in 20 years or 30 years faithful men aren't going. And brothers and sisters, one, we need to be willing to pay that cost. And two, we need to do so with honor and not complaint. Isn't it striking that when the three men were about to be cast into the furnace, there's no complaint? It's just a matter of fact. This is what we are. We're not ashamed of it. You do what you think you need to do. And they joyfully suffered their consequences. In fact, that's, that's all the way through. That's, that's all in Daniel. That's Acts 4. That's Acts 5. It's just the consistent pattern. Another caution. Please be careful about speech when we are disobeying or contemplating disobedience. Our responsibility, no matter what the government is demanding, no matter what they say, even if they are compelling us to do something sinful that we must resist, this still stands. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. That's 1 Peter 2.17. And isn't it notable that he puts side by side fearing God and honoring the king. I don't think that's accidental. We will demonstrate our fear of God when we honor the king. In a similar way, Paul says in Titus 3, be ready for every good deed, verse 1, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all Men. I don't have to agree with every policy that comes out of Austin, Granbury, or Washington, D.C. 
But I must treat those men and women with dignity, with honor, not maligning them, not disparaging their character. I can critique them, but the critique must be done with grace, wisdom, peace, gentleness, honor. Be careful. It is notable that all of the, 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 the primary examples of civil disobedience in the Bible, Daniel 1, Daniel 3, Daniel 6, Acts 4 and 5, none of the participants demanded their rights, none of them protested, none of them complained when their rights were taken away. They just said, we're following God, Acts, Christ. Do what you have to do. This is that moment when I've got like six things rolling through my head and I'm trying to decide, should I say what's in my head and not in my notes? And I'm really glad to see the clock says 1040. I have another hour and a half. (laughs) You forgot to change the clock. (laughs) Not his job. It it was Eve, Lord. It really isn't his job. It has been discouraging to me to read and hear some of the things I've read and heard over the last two months, four years, eight years, twelve years. I don't know. How far back did Clinton go? The things that are spoken by people who wear our brand of faith about governmental authorities. You know, Paul says um, in Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about all kinds of sexual sin. He says, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you. There's some things we just shouldn't even talk about. Should never roll out of our lips. And brothers and sisters, I would say the same thing about our governmental authorities. There are some things that we have said that should have never come out of our mouths. Oh, be careful with your speech. And remember that as you are speaking, your heart is on full display. And when you malign and disparage and complain and whine, and when I do the same, our hearts are exposed for what they really are. Oh, be careful. Back to my notes. Be careful about criticizing those who are submitting when we might not. Do we all agree that the last year has been really challenging? It's not just challenging on, you know, what to do and how to handle what, you know, medical decisions to make, to not make, how to preserve relationships. 
it, governmentally, it's complex. There's been more than one time that there's been some mandate that's come down from the government that contradicts some other mandate. We were talking about this on the elders just the other day. That the governor has said this, but medical opinion and the, the, the arm of the government that tells us what to do is saying the exact opposite. What are you supposed to do? It's kind of like, mom and dad, can you all talk together first before you come talk to us? You just want to tell them that. And then add to that, different governments and different locales are doing different things. So Granbury, Texas looks really different than Los Angeles, California and Washington, D.C. and Edmonton, Alberta. And I think we need to be really, 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 really careful about assigning blame or victory, evaluating how people conduct themselves. Because we don't know the circumstances. We don't know the exact circumstance that they're living underneath and what their government is saying. And we don't know, um, we don't know the dynamics that have gone into their decision making. Let me give you an example. Monday afternoon, morning, late morning. I was talking to a new pastor friend in British Columbia. And I was saying, uh, I asked him, I said, so what are you guys doing in British Columbia? He said, well, you know, we locked down and the rest of the world locked down back last March. And then uh, the British Columbian government allowed us to open back up in the summertime to 50 people in the sanctuary. Irrespective of size of the sanctuary, 50 people as long as they were masking distanced. And then the government shut us back down. And kept restaurants open. I said, so what are you doing? He said, we haven't met since they shut us back down. Now, the Texan in me says, come and take it. (laughs) So I refrained from my snarkiness. And I just asked him, so... Help me, you know, I, I'm, I'm just curious. What's going on in the elder board? What are you guys thinking about? What are you talking about? Why did you come to that conclusion? What, what led you to that? It was an honest question. He said two things. One, when they said restaurants could stay open, but we couldn't, that put us in a dilemma. But there were two things that governed us. One, it's short term. They've said all along, this is not permanent And it's short term. And we're willing to do short term for the second reason. And that is, we are a group of community churches. There's one main church and two small churches in small communities. And we meet in community arenas. And we are well known in the community. And our testimony has been clear with the community about who we are. And our community is really opposed to large gatherings of people. And if we gathered, we would destroy future testimony with those people. So we, we gather. It's just on Zoom for now. And if the government would change and say, no, it's permanent, then, then we'd reconsider, obviously. But we're willing to wait for the sake of our testimony. 
I found that really helpful. Don't you? It helped me to understand there, there are complexities to situations that I don't understand and I need to be careful before I say that was bad or that was brilliant because I don't know. I, th- I think Keith is right. Keith and I were talking about this the other day. Back in uh, 1662, the British government made an edict called the Act of Uniformity. It was designed to get all of the Anglican churches together doing the same thing following the Book of Common Prayer. What they were trying to do was get the Puritan preachers under control and get them to stop preaching the way they were preaching. And um, some of the Puritans said, absolutely not. We cannot sign on that, and we will not follow that. And the government, and remember, the Anglican Church was a state church of England. The government threw those pastors out. Some of them never returned to their pulpit again for decades. And others stayed and worked in the system. And they are men that we read. I have some who were part of the great ejection, as it is called, those who were cast out of the church. And I read their books, and I read some who stayed in and worked underneath the system. And I think Keith was exactly right as he and I were talking about it. He said, when when history judges how churches have acted in this circumstances 50 years from now, We're going to find that good and godly men took opposite approaches and maintained faithfulness to the Lord. I say that just to remind you, people are going to conduct themselves differently and make different decisions. Be careful about criticizing too loudly or cheering too loudly because you and I don't see the hearts. In my notes, I am at the bottom of page four of eight. So, you know, we live in a country where our heritage includes slogans like, Don't tread on me, we serve no sovereign favorite Texan phrase, come and take it. And with that heritage, it's not easy to do what God has called us to do, is it? It's ingrained in us as Americans and Texas, Texans to be distrustful of our leadership. Our country was born in rebellion. And I would submit to you it was born in ungodly rebellion. And we exert our personal preferences as our rights. We want to demand what we perceive as our rights. Yet Peter, Daniel, Paul, and a God-man named Jesus all lived under far more oppressive governments and did so with submission 
honor, and joy. That's our pattern. That's who we follow. I can appreciate reading, getting different influences culturally. I have places where I like to go to read. I have people and columnists and writers that I think are helpful and insightful. But brothers and sisters, this is what must form our opinion on how we will respond to government. And it's clear, isn't it? Every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities. No matter who they are, they deserve to be honored through that submission. Next week, I promise, we'll finish. Father, thank you for the day. We've sung about our sovereign God. We've read some remarkable accounts of people who place themselves in submission in really hard circumstances. And, uh, and we would do likewise. We want to do likewise, not to make life easy, but to make our lives obedient to you. So would you, would you help us this week to think well, to speak well, Act well under the governor and governing authorities that you have given us. Father, might the testimony of Grace Bible Church not only be this is a church that loves each other, but this is a church that honors every authority. City Hall, State Senate, Governor, federal senators, representatives, president, Supreme Court. And when we disagree, might we do so with grace and dignity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.